0: Thank you for listening to the Green Majority Podcast. We have a good show for you today. Stefan is away, but I'm joined by uh, one of our correspondents, Kristina Henka, instead. We have a great show with a very uh, interesting interview coming up for you and a little bit of news, and I'll be doing a solo monologue at the end for the bonus show. Stay tuned for that. If you enjoy the program, best way to support it is to become a member. You can do that for $5, $10 a month if you wish. If you only got a little bit and you just want to show your support, we really appreciate it. Even just the sentimental value of knowing you're willing to go and put your number into the, the machine just for a dollar a month, you can do that as well, too. We would very appreciate it. You can do that at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot slash Green Majority. Enjoy the show. In case you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, we are going to be talking about uh, some environmental news today, as usual, and we have a guest, as usual. What is... I'm hoping is a new usual, though, as we have uh, Christina Henke with us in studio, who's going to be taking uh, points on the interview today. She, in a minute, will be talking to Amitav Ghosh, who's an author, uh, author of the book The Great Derangement, Climate Change and the Unthinkable. Uh, we're going to, after that, be getting to some news. I will just quickly tease the news while we get our phone interview uh, here before i pass over to christina uh so in the middle and later part of the show what i'm going to be talking about is there is of course news about uh donald trump's clean power plan or the donald trump lack of clean power plan uh of course that's the news item a lot of people have heard that that's being gutted i want to get into a little bit of the details but also some of the stuff that's not being directly reported in those stories or at least in that story as part of the story uh, is a lot of the um implications of this and a lot of this sort of downstream, if you will, effects uh, of these types of decisions. In the later section, also we'll be talking about a new world's biggest battery, which is being built. I'm, I'm thrilled when I get to announce it. It seems like almost every week there's a new world's biggest something having to do with renewable energy, but right now it's in South Australia. They're getting a $1 billion solar farm, as well as the world's current biggest Uh, battery power later in the program also going to be doing a little bit of editorializing about um, some of you may have seen samantha b's uh piece on gamification of journalism so we won't be telling that story of course you can watch that clip on youtube but i want to talk a little bit about uh journalism uh with that as the inspiration as well as a piece in the national observer about the irving family whose uh the theme there will be corporate welfare uh as well uh do we have our uh, guest uh Ready on the phone, we're good to go. All right, so with that, I'm going to pass over to my colleague to take the interview. Take it away, Christina.
1: Thanks, Darren. So yeah, Amitav Ghosh is an award-winning novelist of Indian descent, now living in the United States. He holds a doctorate from Oxford University and has taught at Columbia and Harvard University, among others. And to name just a few of the many international awards he won over the years, here are two. In 2010, Amitav Ghosh, along with renowned fellow writer Margaret Atwood, Received the Dan David Prize. The following year, he was a recipient of the International Grand Prix of the Blue Metropolis Festival in Montreal. His latest book was published in October 2016 by the University of Chicago Press. It is a work of non fiction, and its title is The Great Derangement Climate Change and the Unthinkable. This morning, Amitav Ghosh joins me on the phone from Princeton, New Jersey. Amitav Ghosh, good morning.
2: Good morning, Christina. Uh, thank you very much for having me.
1: No, thank you for making some time to speak with me about your fascinating latest book and also about climate change. But tell me, how's the weather there where you are right now? It's raining <laughs> here where I am in Toronto.
2: Uh, it's awful, actually. It's very gray, and it's, been, uh, it's uh, not been good for the last several days.
1: Interesting. Well, you know, of course, talk about weather used to be very innocent, but no longer, right?
2: Yes. Uh, every time we talk about the weather, we are somehow caught up talking about, uh, uh, about climate change. But, you know, I mean, here, after all, in March, it does happen that, it, that sometimes the, the, the weather gets really bad. But in India, actually across North India, there's now uh, an advisory for a heat wave. And this is just March. It's unheard of.
1: Wow. So listen, I've got to ask you straight off. You live in the United States. So how does it feel to be living in a country whose newly elected president seems to have written off climate change as an issue?
2: It's very, very worrying, uh, you know. Uh, I I should add here, though, that I divide my time between India and the United States. So I'm in India about half my time as well. Uh, Well, it's very, very worrying to see what's uh, going on here. You know, I mean, uh, uh, never before has any... uh, a major American leader, uh, come out and just completely denied the science uh, so straightforwardly.
1: Yeah, in your book, you, of course, give reasons for why they would do that, why the government or why authorities would deny climate change. It's not a matter of actually believing that it yes. doesn't exist. There is a strategy behind it, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. There's very much a strategy behind it because, uh, you know, I think people sometimes, uh, when we use this word denial, Uh, we are sort of thinking about uh, someone who doesn't understand the science or rejects the science or whatever. And, of course, there are uh, some people like that. But if you look at the uh, people around Trump, uh, they're by no means uh, badly informed about climate science. They understand perfectly well what's going Mm -hmm. on. Actually, what's underway is really what you might call the corporatization and the securitization of uh, climate change. I mean, essentially, it's being handed over to a kind of corporate security complex.
1: Mm -hmm. Tell us more about what that means.
2: Well, on the one hand, you have, uh, you know, uh, that uh, there's a desire to preserve um, uh, energy profits. Uh, On the other hand, uh, you know, basically what's happening is that uh, uh, not just the United States, actually, but also most Western, um, many Western countries are really adopting, of what Christian Parenti calls the politics of the armed lifeboat, you know, which is uh, their response to climate change is going to be that, you know, we are going to look after our uh, our people over here. Uh, we're going to put up uh, huge barriers. We're going to keep immigrants out. There's going to be massive uh, anti-immigrant policing. And uh, for the rest of the world, the devil take the hindmost. I mean, we're going to uh, carry on living as we've always lived and let everyone else manage as best they can.
1: Yeah, so that's the theory. But of course... Probably not going to work out that way, right? But No,
2: I don't think it is going to work out that way because actually the strange thing is that, uh, uh, you know, we are always told that uh, you know, other countries are going to suffer more than uh, rich countries and so on. But I think a case could be made uh, that uh, the United States has actually suffered more from climate change than any other country. Mm-hmm. You know, if you consider Katrina, Sandy, uh, these, recent, uh, uh, these recent floods in, uh, along the East Coast in Georgia and North Carolina. And if you think of the wildfires, the drought, the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the forests that are being decimated by, by uh, blights and pests, I think the United States is uh, also paying a very high price for climate change.
1: Mm-hmm. Which makes me think of the title of your book, The Great Derangement. Who is deranged? I mean, are we all deranged? Do we all have to take blame for climate change and ignoring the problem?
2: Uh, to some degree we do, I suppose. But really what I'm trying to point to there is that we live in an era where uh, really people worship science, you know. That's Sorry, what did you say?
1: They worship what? Science. Science, okay. You know?
2: uh, this is a period when people worship science. And yet uh, we are not uh, able to heed the most direct warnings of uh, of climate science, you know.
3: hmm mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. So, you know, Amitav Ghosh, as I read your most interesting and beautifully written book, I really couldn't help wonder what a novelist could possibly offer as a solution to the problem of climate change that humanity is facing. You're you're talking about science, uh, which is a big part of, hopefully, the solution. But what propelled you as a novelist to write this book?
2: Uh, let me say first of all that I'm not really trying to address the question of solutions. Uh, uh, you know, I think that uh, there are people who are specialized for that. There are, uh, you know, uh, economists, technologists, and so on, who deal with uh, who deal with all of that. But uh, what I'm really interested in is why, uh, you know, what is happening uh, on the earth, what's happening in our environment, has so far completely escaped, uh, uh, you know, the art. And literature. Uh, this is to me a real conundrum, and I think it's actually a symptom of something something larger. Uh, it's a symptom of the ways in which uh, you know uh, the crisis that we face today uh, evade public attention as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you say you're not looking for a solution, but um, in talking about it and in thinking about it, um, whether it's linked to the arts, whether it's linked to literature, um, by having a conversation, aren't we? automatically thinking about where to go next and what to do about what we're faced with, which is, you know, a pretty terrible future.
2: It is. I mean, what we are heading for is truly truly catastrophic. When I say I'm not looking for uh, that, you know, uh, I I can't propose solutions, it's uh, it's really just that uh, what I'm trying to say also is that I don't think these solutions can actually be uh, technocratic or economistic. I mean, unfortunately, the whole discourse of climate science has so far been completely dominated by uh, economists and technologists and engineers. And it's clear that, you know, uh, actually what they offer as solutions aren't solutions at all. They haven't worked. They're, it hasn't been possible to uh, reach any kind of agreement on most of these solutions. And if you think about it, uh, in a way, economics and uh, technology have brought us to this path Uh, why should we expect that they are going to be able to rescue us from it
1: Mm -hmm. so let me rephrase my initial question then if we're not thinking about a solution so much um, i'm sure you must be imagining some kind of result um, from people reading the great derangement am i wrong you're you're um, expecting some kind of reaction in people, right? After they read the book, what what do you think they might do, or think, or feel?
2: Uh, I wouldn't put it down to anything quite so instrumental, you know. What I'm really trying to uh, trying to explore in this book is uh, truly the uh, the enormity of uh, of where we are and what it says about the human past, the human condition what it says about the politics uh, of humanity. So, uh, you know, my approach is completely different from that of, uh, you know, uh, most people who write on the subject, I suppose.
1: Yeah, but what you're offering is really important because you're sensitizing people to Asia, to the East, which, um, as I was reading your book, I... I thought, wow, I'm so ethnocentric, there is so much I don't know and would never think about. So that's that's really important, you know, for that to be part of this, because after all, you're talking about imperialism and the post-colonial state as being part of what has led to our current situation of climate change. Uh, yes, I think one of the things which strikes me
2: very much when I look at the whole discourse on climate change is exactly uh, is exactly this, how ethnocentric it is, how eurocentric it is. It's not that there aren't people in uh, India or China or Africa. Uh, you know, many parts of Africa, people are, are thinking about these issues very, very seriously. People have been writing about them. But somehow their voices don't seem to count for much, uh, you know, in the whole sort of discussion of climate change. And particularly, I think this issue of empire and uh, more generally sort of global power relations is very rarely taken into account when we think of climate change and what's going on.
1: Yeah, I wonder if you could just expand a little bit about that issue of empire. So we know, you know, Naomi Klein wrote a book about how capitalism is... Uh, you know, behind our our problem with climate change, and a lot of people accept that and and know that, but you add empire to that the the issue of imperialism. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit.
2: Certainly, um, you know, uh, I have the greatest uh, respect for Naomi uh, Naomi Klein, and I I think her her book is uh, amazing, a really wonderful book. But uh, yes, I think there are these dimensions that we don't actually take into account. Just take the fact that, uh, you know, at the inauguration of the fossil fuel economy, which actually happened at around about the time of the uh, Industrial Revolution, that is the late 18th, early 19th century, uh, Britain controlled India and uh, some other parts of Asia. Now, you know, at that point in the early 19th century, there was incredible enthusiasm in India for the fossil fuel economy. Many Indians, that is, Indian entrepreneurs, uh, Indian, uh, you know, uh, leaders of all kinds, uh, they wanted to uh, adopt the fossil fuel economy. In fact, uh, one of the strange things is that uh, is in, in this period, in the early 19th century, India was the second largest market for steam engines, you know, coal-powered steam engines. Hmm. So what happened at that point uh, is that actually uh, Britain needed India to be a, uh, a producer of raw materials. Mm. They wanted to be the, uh, the manufacturers. So in fact, by various kinds of uh, financial and, and, and legal measures, they managed to actually delay the adoption of the fossil fuel economy in yeah. India. So the curious and paradoxical result of this is that uh, the large-scale adoption of a fossil fuel economy uh, in India and uh, in China and elsewhere was actually retarded by uh, by many years. So once you have decolonization, uh, it's no accident that within 20 years of it, uh, you know, India and China are very rapidly industrializing. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it was exactly this that was delayed by imperialism and by colonialism. Mm-hmm. So once... Uh, uh, once uh, Uh, once it was possible for India and China and many other countries to proceed down this path, of course, they proceeded headlong down this path, and that continues to this day.
1: And so, in the discussions about climate change, um, do you find that there is an issue with imperialism?
2: Well, it's a paradoxical issue, in the sense that I think uh, uh, imperialism uh, may actually have delayed the onset of the a climate crisis. But, you know, what is actually the case uh, is that uh, we have these extensive networks of power relations around the world, which are also, in some uh, important way, uh, tied to the fossil fuel economy. Uh, see, uh, through the 20th century, for example, uh, Britain and the United States uh, really, uh, they tied their global power to fossil fuels. In, in many ways, I mean, first coal, but even more significantly to oil. So it was Churchill and Roosevelt and so on who really promoted uh, the uh, adoption, uh, the replacement of coal with oil, if you like.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, Yeah, and that's, uh, also- that's
1: an important uh, issue because coal, of course, allows laborers to organize whereas oil does not. It takes the power away from the workers, right?
2: Absolutely. Uh, oil has proved to be very disempowering for the working class because, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't need many workers, unlike say, uh, unlike coal mines. And it flows, uh, you know, through pipes, which can be just controlled with very few workers. So, yes, coal, you know, in the 19th century, yeah, coal was the focus of so, of so many working class movements. Uh, Timothy Mitchell, uh, the theorist, has argued that, in fact, uh, uh the great demo- democratization that happened in the late 19th and early 20th century was all built around uh, in fact the fossil fuel i mean the coal economy because uh, you know coal miners were always at the lead uh, of all kinds of working class movements mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: and that is absolutely not the case with the oil economy uh, in any case though uh, you know in fact the whole strategic uh, 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 the strategic foundations of uh, british and american power are really tied in uh, to the fossil fuel economy, you know, to the control of uh, uh, the choke point through which oil flows, uh, uh, the Straits of Hormuz and uh, the Malacca Straits and so on. So, in fact, I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a much more complicated situation than just thinking about the uh, the profits of energy companies. In fact, the entire strategic calculus of uh, the British and American power is very much tied to the fossil fuel economy. And if that changes, then there really will be uh, a global upheaval uh, in power relations.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you could tell us more about the comparison you make in your book about Pope Francis's encyclical letter from 2015 in which he addresses climate change um, and compare that to the Paris Agreement. Uh, I think
2: both Francis's document uh, allowed Si, see is is a truly remarkable uh, uh, document. It embodies an approach to climate change which is a complete break with the uh, with the economistic and technological framings of the subject uh, that uh, uh, that lies uh, uh, you know that are represented in this uh, uh, in the Paris Agreement. Uh, uh, Pope Francis has really completely changed the conversation, I think, because I mean, what, what his emphasis is exactly on what what is a good life, what is a meaningful life, and ultimately, these are the questions that uh, climate change poses for all of us. You know, what is a good life? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we live? I mean, does having two or three cars really make you rich? Is that what affluence is about? Is that what uh, living is about? And I think it's because he doesn't, uh, he do, he doesn't fight shy of it, uh, posing these questions that, uh, that this book is, uh, I mean, that uh, the encyclical is just so powerful. Even more than that, uh, you know, the Pope uh, really approaches climate change uh, from uh, the, a perspective of environmental justice and also what climate change will mean for the poor, for the world's poor. Mm -hmm. And to me, as a writer, what is so interesting about the document also uh, is the rhetoric of it, that is to say, the language of uh, Laudato Si, because the language of it is so incredibly simple. At the same time, it's deeply versed in the science. Of course, as you know, the Pope has a huge uh, group of scientists advising him. So it's very scientifically informed, and yet it's, uh, it's so simply put You know, so you can see that the effort is to reach out to people around the world who are not necessarily literate, who are not necessarily well-educated, and to be able to pose these issues for them in a way that is deeply moral and also practical.
1: Whereas you find the Paris Agreement is lacking.
2: It's it's completely a document of obfuscation, you know. Uh, I mean, essentially what it is is that it's like... uh, uh, the whole uh, the rhetoric of it is so interesting because it is completely the same language as all these agreements of the last twenty years, uh, which are now, as you can see, people are revolting against those agreements like NAFTA and TARP and GATT and uh, you know all those all those new uh, trade agreements. It's exactly the same language. Climate change is viewed as an economic opportunity, as a technological opportunity. As you know, uh, the. Um, you know, the drawing up of the Paris Agreement was facilitated by several big businessmen and billionaires, and so on. So it's really, it's a really, it's really a document by the global elite for the global elite.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so um, it makes me think of you know environmental activists um, when they try to draw attention to issues. Um, uh, you know, so often they're rounded up by the authorities, by the police. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's not necessarily because they are violent, although they seem to be, you know, blamed for violent incidents. Um, but what can you tell us about um, your research that you did while writing the book? And you found that environmental activists are being monitored by the authorities. I mean, does this worry you? Of course,
2: it's very worrying. Um Look, uh, you know, one of the uh, one of the most unsettling things about this uh, uh, Paris Agreement, and it's really one of the great historical questions, a question marks that will always hang over it, is what if uh, the uh, the global environmental movement had been able to stage big marches in Paris, uh, demonstrations, bring some sort of pressure to bear upon the governments who were negotiating uh, at the time, but this didn't prove possible, uh, sadly, because there was this terrible terror attack. But within days of that terror attack, uh, it turned out that the French government uh, had uh, uh, put uh, some 40 or 50 environmentalists under house arrest. So clearly, the preparations had been made, they had been monitoring these people, and they were able to move immediately. So uh, they allowed football matches, etc., to go on. But they shut down all possibility of any kind of public demonstration. So, you know, uh, what we can see quite clearly now is that uh, this is a part of the securitization that, uh, that I was talking about, that in fact, uh, security apparatuses around the world have come to be focused on environmental activism. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've been seeing this uh, in India, in Latin America, uh, around the world, you know, that environmental activists have suddenly become uh, the focus of a certain kind of Uh, security thinking
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, final question so beyond climate change but not excluding it what is your message for the next generation of our fellow human beings as they come of age and start to shape this world?
2: Uh, That is actually uh, I suppose uh, the uh, the one thing that I'm trying to do with this book and I'm hoping that it will encourage uh, the next generation to think about the earth and their relationship uh, to the earth in in a completely different way. Uh, That is to uh, to realize that, you know, uh, 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 their relationship with the earth is a very broad one. uh, It implicates them at many, many different levels. And uh, this has a certain moral imperative behind it as well. Mm -hmm.
1: Thank you, Amitav Ghosh, for speaking with me this morning.
2: Thank you, Christina. All right, all the best. Thank you for having me. Goodbye.
1: Amitav Ghosh is the author of The Great Derangement, Climate Change and the Unthinkable. It is published by the University of Chicago Press.
0: All right, and thank you, Christina. And uh, just before we go to our music break, the entire time during that interview, I was thinking about a quote that I actually got from uh, Desmond Cole's documentary, uh, The Skin I'm In, recently, uh, which I won't get into if you know watch the documentary we won't talk about it now but the quote that i was thinking about the entire time was that uh justice feels like persecution to the privileged or oppression to the privileged um it was just ringing in my head the entire time during that conversation thank you so much for your contribution i'm hoping uh, that you'll find an opportunity to jump in during the news at some point uh, later in the show but uh for now we're going to go to music break and come back to me talking about some news so uh just in case you're tuning in now uh this is the green majority on ciut 89.5 fm broadcast internationally uh and throughout canada on a host of very appreciated community partner radio stations on our podcast uh, through a number of other outlets as well check out the website for show notes links uh, you can find uh, links to his uh, book our guest's book today uh, and a number of other uh, news articles and everything on greenmajority.ca but without further delay we're going to go to Kai who's going to tell us what our music break is
3: all right today we're going to be listening to an artist from Alberta this is Joni Mitchell with Big Yellow Taxi They paradise, put up a parking lot. With a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They, they paradise, put up a parking lot. They up all the trees, put them in a tree museum charge the people a dollar and a half just to see them. don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone you paid paradise put up a parking lot hey farmer farmer put away the ddt now give me spots on my
0: And we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM or on our podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca, uh, where you also find uh, some bonus content, all sorts of other information. And uh, I'm, I've been uh, uh, reminded by Stefan, who's not here, but from far, far away, he's reminded me as well. We're still working on climate cartoons. There was a brief pause there while uh, life happened. Uh, but there's some more climate cartoons coming out. Uh, there's a new one that was up on the website that we uh, we really didn't uh, put the proper energy into promoting but we're actually almost about to be finished the fifth one at which point we're going to be packaging them and doing a repromotion so we'll have a show coming up soon Climber Cartoons is basically just short little video clips that uh, Stefan my co-host's brother Dave animates uh, and then I do the voice work for and they're just two and three minute explanations of sort of like really important need to know sort of almost like definitions of what things having to do with renewable energy are because there's so much misconception about that, that topic so we're trying to uh, sort that out for you, uh, defining things like a carbon budget, that sort of thing. Those going to also be found at greenmajority.ca, and there are more of those coming soon, so stay tuned for that. Uh, but if you missed the most recent one, which is number four, that's up now. We just haven't done a great job of promoting it. Uh, so now what we're going to talk about, I'm going to lead uh, here with a, a news item I'm sure many people heard about, which is uh, that Trump axed the Clean uh, Power Plan, one of the more important, I would argue, um, pieces of legislation that the Obama administration was able to put through. Uh, predictably and completely justifiably, uh, all the environmentalists are on fire about this, and they should be. Um, but that being said, I mean, he basically just rolled back all the regulations. So uh, there was some of the important ones there was uh, barring uh, new coal, new developments. I believe it was specifically for coal um, on federal lands. Um, there was some like emission standards stuff like that. It's all that sort of thing. The details, frankly, uh, aren't really important for this part of the discussion. The point is, uh, is that this is essentially um, more corporate, even more <laughs> uh, corporate takeover uh, of uh, the United States and the people who will pay for it. Which is sort of the actual theme of why I'm talking about this: the people who will pay for that are the citizens and everybody else. Uh, so the theme here is uh, a really good example of one-sided accounting. And because we're talking about coal, uh, meanwhile, there's the American health debate going on. We're going to use the Americans as our example here. But this applies in Canada. This applies everywhere. Is a massive case of one-sided accounting that is going to come back and bite them. And it's going to come back and bite them in a monetary point of view. And one of the uh, right-wingers, you know, whether they're Canadian, American, wherever – uh, favorite things to say as well all that's well and nice and, and you know and you feel that and that's your sort of moral ideology but hey I'm the realist here because I'm the one counting dollars and cents and you know and you you can go and have your personal opinions elsewhere but here we're very serious and we count dollars and this is really what's better and I'm the serious person and you know you should trust me and for absolutely no justification whatsoever uh, conservative parties the world round love to take this angle that they're the party of you know responsibility they're the party of business they're the party of serious white men This is not true. However, I'm sure you're shocked to find out. So coal is a great example of how to point this out. Uh, If we're going to first of all, uh, before we even get into the obvious point, coal is rolling out on its own, even with since the announcement of this rollback, coal plants have continued to close. Now, why is that now? Well, it's not because of uh, severe climate restrictions. It's not because of the 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 clean power plan, of course, because this is being ruled out, and they knew it would be ruled out. So even though they were some of this was before the announcement, I mean, everyone understood that Trump would be doing something to promote these industries. And these plants are closing anyway, now they're closing to switch over in many cases to natural gas, uh, because it's simply more profitable uh, in uh, in the current climate that we're in. So this is a really good example of you know why you should never take someone at their word for this sort of thing whenever they say well I'm you know these regulations are burdensome really the it, the best benefit is going to be if we let them go ahead because even though there's some bad stuff that happens we're gonna make so much money there's gonna be so many jobs that it will pay for that well it's really ironic that in the US they're currently uh, having uh, well I should say currently for about the last eight years Republicans have been howling about uh, the uh, quote-unquote Obamacare, which was the uh, American oh no, American Healthcare Act, is the new one. Uh, anyway, you know the ACA, uh, whatever it is, um, and Affordable this is really Care Affordable Care Act. Thank you. I'm getting there's so many acronyms these days, Christina. Um, and so the point is that the coal is one of the most notoriously dirty forms of energy, not just as far as climate change, but also immediately in the sense that if there's uh, lead, uh, there's all sorts of nasty cancer causing things, something I have a particular, uh, angle for these days, uh, particular sensitivity to these days, shall we say? Uh, and these things will be paid for now they say, okay, well, that's why we can't have the, you know, the most cynical and most absolutely cold hearted, uh, people would we'll say, well, you know what? Tough bananas. um, you know, why should the rest of us have to pay for you being sick? Well, partially it's because you made us sick by letting these people pollute the environment, causing people to be sick. Uh, and you want to pull the health care away from them because it's going to be very expensive. Well, first of all, you're the one who made them sick, so maybe you should be paying for it. But second of all is that even if you they don't pay for it, this is going to greatly increase the number of pollution. It's going to inc- uh, increase – the uh, danger to people's health, this is going to result in more people being sick. So either they get sick and you pay for it through some sort of, uh, you know, the current system or a Medicare for all system, which is essentially, you know, single payer, it's what Canada has, or you don't pay for it at all. Under any of those situations, under the healthcare situation, you're going to pay more because more people will be sick. And if you don't pay for them, you have a bunch of Americans who are dying or unable to work, which also has a negative impact on the economy. So there's absolutely no matter which way you slice it, no matter which other set of policy you, you put into uh into account there is a serious downside now you will say well maybe you know that sounds when we talk about people dying and we talk about people getting cancer you know that sounds all squishy and and whatever but when you we have to be realistic this is a government we can't get caught up on single cases there's always going to be certain people going to be harmed by anything you know we're really we need to worry about what's good for most people okay so what we have here though is a case of well who's actually going to be making the money so we have a very small group of people who's going to be making uh, money, and then you have a, a great health impact on your country. And this this thing becomes cyclical, right? Because if people are in a worse financial situation because they can't afford to keep themselves healthy, they're less able to work. They are then uh, have less ability to uh, be politically active because they don't have jobs or they have now been bankrupted because health. And this is this deadly spiral we get into. And what I... Understand is why people would make these types of arguments if they're politicians who want to get elected and they know that they're going to get money from these companies. So the reason why politicians say this makes perfect sense to me, what I don't understand, and I'm, I'm really not being sarcastic here. I really actually don't get it is why people don't understand that making themselves sick to get a job isn't a benefit. I really don't understand. And when we're talking about it, at a massive scale this is also being taken into the uh, and this is the other part of the story. This is also now that you know, so we were just talking about the the US here as a standalone. When you take that into the context of the global situation, Uh, One of the other stories we're going to be talking about in a a minute uh, here is South Australia making these huge investments. China is making these huge investments. EU now is uh, signaling that it will take the lead. Uh, Arguably, I would say, you know, going to be fighting for the lead with China on a lot of these things. Uh, Coal plants are shutting down on their own because they just don't uh, need them. Never mind the fact that in a world where. Most serious nations aside from the U.S. are taking climate change seriously and are building renewable energy. They're going to be needing these sorts of things less and less. So if we have a world now or say, you know, in a few years and things progress and maybe they won't, maybe they will. But say they progress and more countries are doing better and we have the Americans – are pumping, you know, all sorts, you know, all all the restrictions have been lifted, and they're pumping all sorts of God knows what into the atmosphere and methane and carbon dioxide, and everybody else has cleaned up their act. Do you really think the rest of the world is going to let them do that? Do you really think that the rest of the world is going to be paying extra money for healthcare for their citizens because of coal soot that was pumped into the air by a few rogue nations? Not a chance. The Americans influence on the world will not withstand that even under Obama, it wouldn't withstand that under someone as weak and feeble uh, at actually being able to uh, negotiate his supposedly strongest ability is, is going to be in a situation where this could, uh, and I'm not making a prediction here. I'm just talking about possible outcomes. Possible outcomes is that in a way, these types of policies could in fact further reduce the amount of power that the U S has. And could we imagine a world Christina? I don't know if this is, going too far out to the world, but could you imagine a world where other countries create sanctions on the United States for not living up to the rest of the world's uh, clean energy? I don't know. I could foresee it. I don't, does that sound crazy to you?
1: Yeah, no, I think they've been talking about it already in
0: Europe. And this would be, I mean, talk about a, a shift in the geoglobal power. Now, this is interesting, because it's an interesting news story. and And for someone who I read somewhere anywhere between 10 and 20 news articles a day because it's the only app on my phone and i did that intentionally so i can keep up to date it's part of what i like to do and it's also part of my job here but i mean this is this is not (laughs) this is not a crazy future and and why you know so it's interesting it's interesting from a news point of view it's it's interesting from a geopolitical point of view but this is also highly highly relevant for canada and uh, this is largely I'm going to leave some of this commentary for next week, because next week we have Tim Nash coming in, uh, who many of you longtime listeners will know are uh, is essentially my uh, economics expert, my, my economics correspondent, uh, who I love uh, having friendly little debates with. Um, but we're going to be talking about some of these issues. And one of the things I want to talk to Tim about, and he's actually been writing about this a little bit, is what does an adjustment in the global power structure uh, specifically with uh, the Americans impact on the world stage mean for Canada? Because as we know, we have been living in their shadow for quite some time for very good uh, reason. There are a lot of advantages to having a a really big next door neighbor. Um, But when that next door neighbor moves, what does that mean? Well, I think there's a lot of implications and uh, I don't have all the answers. I'm not going to claim to have all the answers. I certainly don't even have enough time to go through all the answers I do have. Um, But I really want to impress because I have not seen a lot of talk about this. I really want people to start thinking and I want people to start asking the questions. What does it mean for Canada? If the U.S. is no longer top dog, it means a lot more than you think, and I think we'll just start uh, there. Uh, I have more. I'm going to mention just quickly mention the the power farm here thing, and then we'll go to our next uh, break. Um, so, just as an example, as I teased a minute ago, South Australia is about to get a one billion dollar solar farm and the world's biggest battery. As I said, this is a, a record. we we're, we're thrilled to announce gets broken regularly, but as far as the details in the latest record breaker. The system uh will be uh four uh sorry, three point four million solar panels, one point one million batteries, and operations set to begin by the end of this year, very, very soon. Uh the developer Lion Group uh says the system will be the biggest of its kind in the world. Um and uh Green, uh where's his name? David Green, who's a partner with this group, uh is that they're planning on building uh, a few more around the country um Uh, In the future, uh, based on the success of this one, they also pointed out that the and this is sort of you you, you'd need to know the local news for this to be. obvious why this is important, but there was a large power station that closed at the end of 2016 and they were saying uh, that, you know, so some of the news was, oh, well, this is just because there's a sudden, a sudden need. That's not at all the case. The, this has been planned to be happening for quite some time. And one of the quote that I pulled out here that I thought was very key, so this is a partner with the group building the panels. So, I mean, if you want to call that uh, a bias, I think I would uh, too, but I think I still think it's an important point, uh, which is that he says, uh, quote, we see the inevitability inevitability of the need to have large-scaler solar and integrated batteries as uh, any move to decarbon carbonize any short-term decisions are only what i would call noise in the process and so what he means by that is what he's saying is that you know When you're looking long-term, which is the type of scale thinking you need to have when you're talking about energy and infrastructure projects, these are not snap decisions. These are long, long long-term decisions. And so are them when we decide in Canada to build pipelines. This isn't because, well, this year, you know, great, if we had a pipeline right now, we could be making this much more money. That calculation is not relevant. The calculation that's relevant is how useful is this for us over the 40 years that this thing is going to be in operation, perhaps more. Perhaps 60 years. Can we be confident that this is our best interests for the next 40, 60, 80, 100 years? And not only can we not be certain that it is in the case of pipelines, we can be certain that it's not. So that's what he's saying here is that any short term policy that's wiggling up and down, any, you know, somebody might invest in this or invest in that, but regardless of that, this is all noise in the process. This is all. It's all irrelevant to the long term trend, which is that this is going to happen no matter what climate policy the Americans come up with, no matter what happens, no matter whether we get ravaged by climate change next year or in 50 years. This is going to happen no matter what, and we need to start thinking that way. The premier uh, in this uh, for uh, Australia, Jay Wither, Witherill, commented, uh commended the line group uh, for the initiative uh, which has enabled 330 megawatts of power and at least 100 megawatts of storage, saying that projects of the sort, renewable energy projects, represent the future. And I could not agree more. Why don't we take our break there? I'm going to come back and talk a little bit about the Irving family and the gamification of things, but in this case, journalism. Now, before that, Megan is going to tell us what we're going to listen to.
3: So for our second music break, we're going to be listening to Amy Milan. This is Low Sale.
0: We are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm feeling a little lonely in the studio. I'm so used to having Stefan here. It's a, it's a bit of a crush, but I'm not alone. Kristina Hank is with me as well. Thank you for being in the studio today, Christina. My pleasure. Uh, so you're uh, uh, just sort of playing my sounding board uh, for this component because I did not prepare you on any of my news items. But should you have a comment, uh, please do jump in. What I wanted to talk about really quickly, I don't know, I, have you heard of, you know who Samantha Bee is? Have you heard of this uh, show, uh, Full Frontal?
1: Uh, well, fill me in.
0: Fill me in. Okay. So it's, uh, Samantha B used to be one of the co hosts on The Daily Show. She's since been given her own program. And I at first was a little bit skeptical. She was never really my favorite character on The Daily Show, but she has really come into her own on this program. Um, and I really just love it because um, she sort of had a shtick when she was on The Daily Show uh, as just like a wet, the wacky blonde reporter, and I kind of wasn't really thrilled with her character. Um, her show on this is extremely in your face. I can't say it on air, but <clears throat> you uh, sort of super strong feminism, and I love it. It is great, Mm -hmm. and it's not not that the show is about feminism. She's just an extremely obviously strong woman, feminist character doing a show about events and things that are important to a variety of people, but Mm -hmm. from that strong, uh, feminine point of view. And uh, and I love her. So what she talked about recently was um, this idea, and she used the example of a Canadian paper. I actually apologize. I'm going to pull it up really quickly here. Um, I believe it was yes. I believe it was a Canadian uh, newspaper. Yes, New Brunswick Today. So they actually used a Canadian uh, example. And what she did was talking about how, um, so she talked to the the basically the only journalist at this paper. And they were covering how there was breaking news that the silly city had delayed hiring an aquifer, a uh, qualified water director over five years after the previous water director had committed suicide in 2007. Uh, there were problems with the drinking water. A man had pled guilty for trying to hide the uh, uh, truth from public view. Police actually showed up to seize the tape that someone had sent the journalist. Um, And so he's doing this sort of thing. That news item had later been picked up by Politico, which reached 20 million people. Just this small, tiny paper. He's uh, from a town of, uh, sorry, a city, rather, of 55,000 people. They had less than 100 paying subscribers and doing really incredible work. And this isn't just... You know, well, you know, he was working very hard, isn't he? He had to put a whole newspaper together and, and, and write all his own crosswords. This person is doing genuine, really impactful primary reporting, first hand journalism, really good work. Um, so, we, sorry,
1: so this was a newspaper in New Brunswick? In New Brunswick. What and, was the name of it?
0: Uh, they actually, uh, just New Brunswick Today. There we go.
1: Okay. And they still exist? New Brunswick Today.
0: Uh, you know what? I'm getting uh, I'm getting confused. It may actually oh, – you know what? It's called New Brunswick Today, but it's actually from New Jersey. There we go. That was the important detail. So yes, it is called New Brunswick Today, but it's a New Jersey newspaper.
1: New Jersey, USA.
0: That's right. Yeah. Uh, so what the reason they were talking about it though, so why this was uh, relevant. So what they did was as a joke on the show, uh, as a semi-joke, they had a gamification expert named Gabe Zuckerman come on uh, and said basically how can we help this guy get some more subscribers? They're obviously doing really important work. But they, they're having funding problems, and they came in and, and had a really funny idea, which they actually did. This is what I loved about it. They didn't just talk about it. They did it where they uh, turned uh, getting subscriptions. It came with a lottery ticket, and they – uh, increased uh, their subscriptions uh, 400-fold in like the two weeks that they did it or something like that. In some cases, they literally just walking around with a handful of lottery tickets saying, if you sign up for a newspaper right now, I'll give you this lottery ticket. Mm-hmm. And they got like 300 more people to sign up to the newspaper. And so the interesting thing there, A, it's funny. Um, but also, B, I think it really speaks to this idea that I think inherently people do understand, like we talk about people not understanding how important journalism is. I think they kind of do it's just one of those things where I feel like it's one of those things where people just kind of expect it to be there. Like they'd miss it when it was gone. Kind of like having your mom do your laundry when you're in like if you're still in university but you're living at home and then you move out and you have to do your own laundry. Like you never really appreciated your mom for doing it and then all of a sudden you don't have it and you're like, oh, no, I don't know how to do this on my own. And I kind of feel like it's the same thing. And the only problem, though, is we can't teach them a lesson by taking it away, right? If, if journalism goes away – all, you know the the barn door has been flown open for corruption i mean the world goes to hell sometimes i feel like you know the uh, the threat of journalists finding out the truth is the only thing that holds some pretty hideous back people back from doing some pretty hideous things so there's no way to take it away but you know but there's no way to sort of show that but i was sort of really interested in this example because uh i think it was like oh maybe the problem isn't that people don't understand how important it is it's just that we haven't prioritized it in a way that they've actually connected that because there's that sense and I've had this thing too and and maybe you can sympathize Christina this the idea that like well people will be like well I'll take any money uh, for, you know, for charity and they have a jar and be like, well, I have 75 cents in my pocket. And it's, sure, if I'm there and I have the 75 cents, sure, whatever, it's just 75 cents. But if they send me in an email and say, you know, we'll take anything, mm-hmm. I'm not going to send them a check for 75 cents because it feels like that amount is, is trivial, is meaningless. It's not even worth the effort of me doing that, mm-hmm. is the benefit that they're going to get. And so I don't do it. Not realizing that it re- those small amounts really can make or break the difference in these cases when you have almost no funding, any funding. Is useful. Um, Yeah, I
1: I think what you're saying that personal contact is important, right? If you see someone face to face, it's a real person explaining what they're doing, what they're associated with, and how you might find this interesting. Yeah, I just wanted to say though, um, people live in their bubble, and Mm. they sometimes don't seem to think that it's important to know about current events or about things outside of their community. Um, and I think that's the problem, that people are so busy, they're so stressed, they're just surviving. Mm. And they can't be bothered knowing about things that don't pertain to their family, to their community, to their jobs, you know. Um, so I think if they make the link, they're more likely to be interested in journalism. If they make the link to their own personal lives, mm. why is this important for me to know about um, Because, you know, otherwise it's, oh, well, those other people, the ones with the suits, right? Um, And they feel disconnected from that. So I think as soon as they see that it touches them personally, and they have actually a vested interest in knowing what's going on, so they can't be fooled anymore, um, I think they'll start to, you know, care more about the newspapers and, uh, yeah, radio and TV and podcasts. So... Yeah. yeah,
0: and I think that, I think there's two interesting things there. One of the one of them is just a guess, maybe, and you can tell me if you disagree. But one of them is that, like, you know, so there's the idea of the newspaper, the traditional newspaper, the, which t- basically doesn't exist anymore. But you know, the idea was that you know you had a sports section, a breaking news section. You have all these sections, right? And they sell it as a package deal for a single price because then you know otherwise you'd get into this thing where some people would only want the sports section, whatever, and it's too much cost. So it's really it's more efficient to do it that way. But the other aspect there is that you know if people really only want to read the sports section, or if they read Really, only want if they're buying the two dollars to get the you know new homes section or whatever, they'll still read the news section once they have the paper. But if you offer them the ability to buy them all separately, they will only buy the thing that they're interested in. And so, I think there's an interesting, I think, metaphor there, or maybe a micro, 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 micro example of sort of. You know, almost like a, an example of a, a defense of government regulation in a way that like, you know, sometimes there's things that don't apply to you and maybe even might even negatively impact you. But when we look at this at the large scale, it really does make sense. And part of the problem is, as you sort of alluded to there, is that people only look at from their, I think, understandably, it's not even a criticism, understandably, you know, look at it only from their own point of view. And and that this sort of communalist thinking is really like, well, maybe it's not important to me, but it's really important to someone And that someone is important to me. And so I should uh, do this. So, you know, just the idea that journalists are, are important part of democracy, I think has been lost as in the sense of like, you know, their right to vote. Having journalists is almost as important as your right to vote. I I would say it maybe some people would find that extreme, but uh, I don't find it extreme.
1: Yeah, and that's that's sorry to jump in. But I just want to say, uh, when I was in journalism school, that was actually the number one rule that we were taught is, if you write a story, if you tell a story, you have to make it relevant to your listener to your reader. And how do you do that? Well, you give them a story, an actual story that they can smell and feel and think about in terms of how it relates to them, you Mm. know, so they can identify with it somehow. So that's the key.
0: Yeah, and I think that the other uh, the other sort of aspect of that I think is that I wonder um, I wonder how much of this is that people don't want to be informed about things that they feel like if they get the information it will make them sad and there's nothing they can do about it and my my addition of that second part is um, is that I I wonder I, in fact I would propose I hypothesize um, that if people had either more agency in politics or had a better improved perception of their agency in politics if they if they if this sort of i would say largely accurate assessment that you know politics you know mostly ignores you um, was vindicated or was perceived to have been changed. If people felt like th- you know their input mattered, that they would then be interested in reading the news because part of the reason they're not interested in, in reading the news part of the news section or maybe the science part of the science section is they feel like, well, if I have this information, it's going to affect me emotionally, probably negatively, and there's nothing I can do about it, so I don't want to read it. Whereas if they felt like, oh, my vote really did matter and I really did have an impact on public policy, then they would go and seek this information out more. What do you think of that hypothesis?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's good. Um- Um, Sure. But it's also that, you know, yeah, they want a solution. They want to feel empowered that they can make change that they matter. But I think some of it is also that they just don't understand the larger issue, because, uh, you know, they're just not interested because they don't have time. They haven't thought about it because it doesn't seem relevant to their lives. So if you can break it down for them, or if the journalists can break it down for them and explain to them, um, kind of how it's pretty simple, actually, you can simplify everything, you know, Um, they might, they might care more. But if it's like this thing that, you know, only the politicians talk about, it will always stay somewhere else. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so... If they somehow can think about it, you know, and give their opinion, I think that's the start of taking action for them.
0: I I almost wonder, and I've thought of this before, but I'm also not sure if this is like regressive uh, at the same point, but like kind of like the – like you know, they've like the bullet point, right? So I have the headline and then there's like the the, the tagline, which is the cell line or whatever. And then they'll have the little description line. If there wasn't like almost by default, uh, not by regulation, I'm just saying by, by convention, um, some sort of like, and here's how this, why this should matter to you. <laughs> and one of those things, like, for instance, in the case, we're coming back to the news here, we're, we're just wrapping up. We've got about two minutes left, so I'll leave the Irving stuff for the, maybe the bonus show or, or another week, but, uh, just the idea of like, you know, what I was talking about earlier, my, my sort of case for this problem of one-sided accounting, where it's like, you'll get jobs you'll triple your health care costs but you'll get jobs and um you know, and your kids won't have any playgrounds and whatever, it's sort of here's the short version, you know, so and so says this will make jobs. Uh, but it will also not so and so says it will drastically increase, you know, healthcare costs due to climate change, it will drastically increase healthcare, you know, so it's like, are in sort of make that clear is that yes, someone is offering you more jobs, but it comes with this risk, not so and so says it's good for the jobs. And so and so says it's bad for the uh, environment. And then we go, well, those things don't like they're not it's not part of a set, right? It's like yes to one a and no to, two B, and they're not connected. And it makes it seem like they're possibly both true at the same time or neither are true. And then people don't know what to make of it. it was like, this will increase jobs. So-and-so makes this case. This will also increase healthcare due to, you know, putting sulfur in the air. That's not an opinion. That's science. Um, and here's someone making the argument for that and sort of separate that f- indisputable factual part from the editorializing or the political sort of angling I, I don't i don't think there's a clean way to do that but i wish there was
1: yeah and inviting people in with their comments you know i think that's that's really helpful too because it empowers them if they can voice whatever it is that they feel or think about the subject even if they're not experts
0: all right well or at the very least uh christina uh, everyone could just listen to the show every week Mm-hmm. also an option. <laughs> thank you so much for your time and your uh, time put you put into doing our interview today uh with uh, amitev uh Ghosh and uh about the book uh, that is all the time we have for but uh thank you listener for listening thank you Christina for coming in thank you all our volunteer techs and uh I guess have a great week yeah take care That's it for our regular broadcast. Now coming up is a short monologue by me about uh, income and uh, uh, corporate welfare. Basically, is our bonus show content. Just a short monologue from me, as I said, because I'm solo today. Uh, but we will still have something for you. If you can become a member, that's the best possible way to support the show. You can also help share our content on social media as well, or sign up for just a dollar a month. If you uh, are a little bit tight on funds, we understand. Believe us. Uh, if you can, however, we would appreciate five or ten dollars a month. You can do that through Patreon.com, and it would really help out help continue to get this show improved help us get our climate cartoons out and a number of other things as well you can do that at patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash green majority enjoy the bonus show my short monologue this week for the bonus show excuse me will be about uh corporate welfare in general because one of the things i've been talking about a lot on the show excuse me a little tickle uh, one of the things I've been talking a lot on the show uh, recently is about uh, minimum income and even a maximum income, which is something I would like to see. Um, but a lot of this comes up as to why. And people, well, a lot of the reaction to this will be is that, you know, this is very extreme. Uh, I've had that conversation, and we, we can and will do that at other times. We've also talked a little bit of that in the past. But I want to take a slightly different angle today, which is uh, the story we didn't get to this week that I had flagged, which is there's an excellent piece, and exposé. There has been a number of these, actually, on the Irving family, which is uh, one of the richest Canada uh, families in Canada. They have uh, a near-virtual stranglehold on the East Coast uh, in this country, uh, economically speaking and through their political influence um and one of the things that was pointed out in this article which i will tag for you to to look at your own i won't go too much into what's in the article uh because you can just read that a and b because it would take me 35 minutes to do that and that you can read it much faster than i can read it to you uh but i will pull out a couple of key details uh which is the corporate welfare angle Uh, a lot of major industries get subsidies uh, we know that uh, I think it's something uh, $40 million. Each. No, it's much higher than that. I, I apologize. You know what, I don't have the number off the top of my head. So I'm not gonna make uh, make one up. I, I used to know and I just don't have it handy. But there's a very large number. We'll come back to it another time. But there's a very large number of uh, money that the oil industry gets uh, through uh, what's uh, subsidies and, and other allowances. There's all sorts of ways that you can calculate subsidies. Sometimes it's tax breaks. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, making exceptions for certain rules. Maybe sometimes it's you know, they might, uh, as is in the case with the Irving family and a lot of their, uh, properties, um, it'll, they'll go and say something like, Hey, you know, we'd really like to open this factory, uh, and that's going to create a bunch of jobs for people, but, you know, I'm not going to make quite as much money on it. So uh, if you go ahead and give me – and this is the little case. So I'm not making an example here uh, now uh, of the Irving family was, you know, if you give us a tax break, we'll build this factory and create a bunch of jobs in your town. Uh, and if you don't, well, you can suck it basically. Um, and that's really interesting. And I could even see somebody making a case for that being a good thing. I don't agree with that case, but a case for that could be made. Um, the problem here is the double account or the lack of two-sided accounting on that. One of them is that, uh, rarely is there an opportunity cost run, uh, almost all of the time the corporation gets a hell of a deal, uh, which in many cases, as again, is outlined in the article, which I encourage you to read, uh, is that the benefit of the jobs created is often not even calculated and i think it's fair to be extremely questionable <laughs> find it extremely questionable that these in fact even pay for themselves much less benefit the municipalities that they end up going into this is often just strong-armed uh, negotiation from position of power uh, of the company also you know especially helps with the irving where some of their business is in the media and some of their business is in the oil company It's awfully convenient isn't it uh, that uh, so much uh, asymmetrical power, political power, can be brought to bear on local politicians who often relatively have an incredibly lo- uh, low end of the power, di- power dynamic there, uh, uh, You know, which is not necessarily what you might assume, but it's true. That's all terrible, and I think it's terrible, and I think most people would, would agree that it's not. But even if you think that that's well, that's fine. The case here that I want to make really quickly uh, in our bonus show this week is that If you want to make the argument that that sort of thing is acceptable, if that's if that's something that we should just need to do, because it's for the best long term on the large scale. It's for the best interest of Canadians that this be done, even if, you know, in the short term at a very local scale, maybe there's some hardship. You're maybe a little bit, you know, uh, you think of yourself as a as a practical person, as a pragmatist. And well, you know what? Nothing is perfect. Some problems are just baked into the cake. And, you know, that's the price we pay for an overall net benefit. Well, that's a very curious argument to make, I find, because you know, even if I was sympathetic to it, which I'm largely not, but say in you know, some cases there, that may in fact be the case – I in fact have made that same case myself on a, on a few occasions in some areas uh, – is to ask the question of why does this not apply to individual Canadians as well, because – you know arguably a something like a minimum income could be considered a subsidy is another word for it um rather than uh you know so if 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 we want to call it a subsidy then why don't citizens get a subsidy Uh, if the point of this is to create jobs why don't we just subsidize the jobs rather than subsidizing the company who again referring back to the article you'll find uh just pockets a lot of this money this specific case brought up in the article with the irving family was you know they negotiated an, an extremely tough deal uh, that saw them pay fractions of what they would normally owe in, in property tax uh and then they're simply leasing this space to an international company so uh I, i'm gonna have to approximate the numbers i don't have them front for me and and the specifics don't matter but the ratios are correct Uh, which is they had something like $300 million, say, assess in tax assessment. They got it reduced down to less than $100 million. Um, All they're doing with the land is subcontracting it to another company who then pays them almost $300 million a year to use the land. So they got a tax break from the local government so that they could just sell it to someone else, say, like, subleasing your apartment. I'm going to demand... Uh, a better rent from my landlord for the explicit purpose of not living in it so that I can, you know, be more economically prosperous by using that to base my operations and maybe all, you know, my family will grow and I will want to rent more apartments, which would be the argument you would they would be seen to be making. The actual argument is just, no, I'm going to rent it to somebody else and I just want to increase my profits uh, of this sublease to somebody else, which doesn't really help Canada at all, does it? Um Especially when they could just be leasing it directly for the higher amount to this international company would be one other way of solving this problem and keeping all of the money, Um, but due to political influence and all these sorts of things. But fine. But here's, again, coming back to the other angle of the equation – Why don't the individual people actually getting these jobs get the subsidy? Why don't we just subsidize them? You say, well, that's welfare. I say, well, okay, well, then what Irving is getting and what many other corporations get and it was a global problem are also getting welfare. But for some reason, the media has bought hook, line, and sinker this argument that when we're talking about individuals, we're going to call it welfare and that they've polluted and and totally sullied that word that that sounds like a bad thing, that the welfare of people should be bad. Uh, But we're going to call it subsidies when it's companies because subsidy is something that leads to economic benefit because it's a company. We're really talking about the exact same thing. And so what I'm asking for here is a little bit of intellectual honesty and a little bit of ideological consistency. Either subsidies slash welfare works, and then we should be doing it for certain industries and for citizens, or we should do it for neither. At least there should be some parity between these two systems. And in cases where jobs are the output, let's fund the jobs. Let's create the jobs. Let, let's create uh, incentives such that companies want to create these jobs where they're economically viable instead of simply giving them the money and then hoping that maybe at some point later they create jobs. Um, or at least putting something into place where they must use the money in a way that helps Canada. Currently, what happens, though, is a lot of these big companies go out and negotiate very tough deals because of their influence, uh, Irving Case uh, just being one of them, and then they just pocket the money. So I would like to know. I would like to know, are, is corporate welfare really the best use of Canadian uh, land, money, resources, labor? And if it is, why is subsidizing citizens not equally important? That is my thought for the week. And going out with one of my favorite, well, I'll put two favorite quotes. One of them is that uh, facts have a well-known liberal bias of course, one of my favorite lines from uh, the late night TV fame. Uh, I'm blanking, of course. I'm just having one of those days on who that was. But, you know, I think it was Steve. It's not Steve Carell. Uh, uh, Many of you know who I who I mean, but it doesn't matter. Uh, The other one is the idea of socializing the costs and privatizing the profits, which is really what we have a problem with here in Canada. We have this problem internationally and it's a problem with corporations. So I just want to have some intellectual consistency. I want to have some uh, ideological fortitude to say that certain things are good or certain things are bad. And if they're not, if it's a mixed case, say, well, it's more complicated than that. Sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. Well, let's have that discussion. Let's do some full cost accounting. Let's actually add this stuff up. Do these subsidies help Canadians or do they just help the companies? And if they just help the companies and not Canadians, why are we doing it? That's it for the bonus show this week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being a listener of the Green Majority in general and for this week and uh, for sticking it all the way to the end of the bonus show. Thank you so much for your time. Stefan will be away again next week, but I will have Tim Nash in the studio with me who will hopefully also be sticking around for some fun bonus show content. Stay tuned for that. Other than that, have a great week, folks, and take care.